I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Pack Radio. Get excited, y'all. Welcome back, everyone, to 12-Pack Radio, your podcast source for Pac-12 football news, gambling advice, and the home of the Baderank College Football Advanced Statistical Model. Thanks for joining us. If you haven't subscribed yet, you can do so on any podcast catcher, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, you name it, we are there. And you can follow us on Twitter at 12PAC Radio. And we are halfway through bowl season, which means I am halfway through getting just punched in the face, frankly, by the Ohio State football program. That was a brutal loss that my dad and I happened to be on. And uh, and just watching USC go down in flames. So not, not the best week on my end, but I am joined to break down all of the Pac-12 games and to preview the ones coming up with Mr. Max Meyer from Sports Illustrated. What's going on, Max? Not much. Just uh, currently finishing up the NFL Sunday, but um, I actually came out lucky on my end with the Ohio State-Clemson game. I took Clemson 11 and a half live, and Ooh. so that that was pretty easy. <laughs> I just wish I took money line. Oh, yeah, that, it was a real, I mean, like, the the LSU you know Oklahoma game was was pretty bad, but it was it was awesome in the sense of just watching LSU's offense roll and all that. So uh, we we talked about our picks for both of the playoff games on the last podcast. But man, it, it just that Clemson Ohio State game it was it was really fun to watch, and it just sucked because Ohio State jumped out early and left so many points on the board. And it had so many stupid penalties, uh, but at the end of the day, like props to Clemson for being able to stay in the game. And that red zone defense is so nasty. And just to be able to hold Ohio state to field goals ended up being the difference of that game. Uh, but we are not talking about, about the college football playoff. We're here to talk about the how, conference how, of champions. How lucky Clemson got like, <laughs> I was about to say, I wasn't Clemson's red zone defense. It was JK Dobbins dropping two touchdowns. And oh my God. Just... On another. I mean, like, I'm, so, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, the uh, I could never be a sports writer because I was sitting around today and there were all these takes about like the guttiness of Clemson, and I was like, what you just saw was randomness. Like, you just you just saw Clemson plus randomness in streaks together. Like, just uh, like uh, like everything went right for them in that game, um, for them to be able to to win that game. And I mean, that happens. I mean, like people people try to personify it in football and, um, you know, talk about, you know, guts and this, that, and the other, but it's usually like how good you are. Plus like a, a solid dollop of randomness that decides games. That, that bum rush of the quarter or of the punter, you oh, know, on God. the, on the yeah, 10 yard it. line. <laughs> oh, and the targeting call, I mean, like the targeting call we've seen, that was, that was no different in the way that that hit went down than that Washington State Air Force game, that last play of that game, where the Air Force player took a shot 
uh, to the helmet and was, I mean, was like that guy probably lost like five years out of his life off of that targeting hit um, by the Cougars. And like that, that, like that, yes, it's, it's by definition, it's targeting. Absolutely. But um, just bad luck for Ohio state. I mean, they extended two Clemson drives that turned into touchdowns, you know, with penalties. I mean, like that kind of stuff. Like if you go back through it, like, and I live in Columbus and Ohio state fans are fixated on that fumble for the most part. Um, But you could list seven or eight different things that had to go Clemson's way for them to win that game. And they all did that beautiful 67 yard touchdown. By oh my God, that. <laughs> Trevor Lawrence. It was one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen in my life. I think I was crying just watching, just going, oh my gosh, he's going to do it. He's actually going to make it all the way. This is the long legs of able to sprint down the field and outrun the entire Ohio State defense. It was just, uh, it was a thing of beauty. But, um, like, I, and, and Max, I mean, you can maybe speak to this too. So most of the books had in their power ranks had Clemson number one coming in and then. Everybody after the LSU, after the the games came out, LSU was on top of everyone's power rank. And I think they opened it circa at five and it's been pushed up to six. When I ran beta rank this morning, it was 5.78 for LSU. Um, I was just surprised given, uh, given everything that the books, you know, switched to have LSU that quick. Yeah. It seems like a slight overreaction. Um, Let me see what the line is because I, I feel like for this, like, four and a half would be fair. Yeah. Uh, I know that they were, th- I think they were actually three on the look aheads, but if, if Clemson gets up somehow to seven, I'm, Oh, actually no, right now it's at five and a half, but okay. I could totally see this creeping up to like six, six, six and a half. <laughs> and that's going to probably force me to be on Clemson. I, I just, I like, I guess, yeah. Like, cause I, I mean, most of the advanced, you know, the stats models had had Ohio state LSU and then Clemson, um, including beta rank. And so, I mean, it was, it's no surprise that beta rank came in with LSU as the new number one. And then Clemson was still at number three. Um, but I, I was surprised that the books flipped it like that, that quickly off of that one game. Cause I guess I, I mean, if you, if I, I did. I didn't have them that close, but I guess they must have. But it's interesting because they they came out right around, right about where Beta Rank has has the game. One of the things that stood out for me was the difference between the teams on that field in the middle to low tier of the Pac-12. I mean, oh just God. can you imagine an Arizona team facing Clemson? Like they, they don't belong on in the same state, basically. <laughs> like it was just, just the no. talent all over that field. Well, to be fair, Clemson and the rest of the ACC wasn't <laughs> a fair fight either. That's true. true. But I mean, like, would you like? I, mean, I, I know people take away that like Oklahoma was like really the ugly duckling um, in the playoff, and that's true. I mean, they were there were three there are three very very good teams in college football this season, um, and then Oklahoma, but. I mean, like, if you look back, I mean, what's sort of amazing, I think, and you can sort of see the advanced, you know, the advanced stats tracking is how much better the the top teams are starting to get. Um, you know, they're really building. I mean, the playoff is is forging sort of college football superpowers, if you will, um, because you would you take like you take a couple of years ago what Bama did to Washington or. Um, Michigan State or what Clemson did to Ohio State or those kind of things like LSU would have done that to Washington or that Washington playoff team 
or that Michigan State playoff team, you know, or um, that Notre Dame, like no, that Notre Dame team last year would have gotten beat by 50 too. You know, like there's just, there's a clear line uh, developing in college football between the haves and the have nots. Well, I think that's, and and I, oh, and I was going to, well, I think really what, I think just because recruiting isn't localized anymore and that programs are getting recruits from all over, I mean, in terms of a Pac-12 reference, I mean, look at the state of California, Um, Alabama, LSU, Clemson, like they all got top 10 prospects from the state. And I think Oregon had, obviously they got Justin Flo. And I mean, I'd have to look at the rankings, but I feel like out of the top 10 California prospects, I I feel that uh, non-Pac-12 schools got the majority of them. And that's why you're seeing, and, and Pac-12 teams aren't aren't recruiting nearly as well in the South. So that's why you're seeing these programs have such an advantage over conferences like the Pac-12. It almost seems like Stanford is the most national program right now in terms of recruiting. I mean, they went out yeah. and, and we take a look, like you mentioned, Max, I think of the top 25 prospects in California, I think Stanford signed the only top 25 uh, player out of any of the schools from California, which is just crazy town. But so that means that they went out and they were able to pull off all these players all across the country. So they, they ended up the top. Let's just go into recruiting here real fast. So the top three uh, programs and, and, you know, like some of the stuff is kind of subjective. But at the end of the day, stars do matter and bringing in talent matters, particularly if you have a good coaching staff. And the top three teams in the Pac-12 were Washington at 14, according to uh, 24-7. Uh, number 18 was Oregon. And number 22 was Stanford. I was really surprised about that with all the turmoil that was going on there, guys. Yeah. Uh, did, did that did that stand out for you as much as it did me? Well, I, I, think, I, I just okay. think uh, I just think with Stanford that they're always going to have an edge because of the academic side, and you're getting uh, a scholarship to go to one of the most prestigious universities. And besides that, um, I mean, D- David Shaw, even though granted the the Stanford coaching staff has has come under fire recently, but he still has a great track record for churning out prospects to the NFL. And yeah. so I, I see why Stanford's an, an attractive destination still for high school kids. When you take a look at some of the other schools, I mean, I liked how Utah made their move, right? So they were like 60th on signing day and they ended up signing a couple four star players and being able to, to boost that up. And, you know, again, you talk about a coaching staff, be able to develop talent into the NFL. I think Utah has a pretty solid track record of that front. So for them to jump up to 32 is, is solid. But when you're taking a look at, I mean, the, the schools that really jump out for me is UCLA and USC. Obviously we've talked about USC being at like 79th or whatever they are. But when you have the two premier schools in Los Angeles, not bringing the talent in that, that like literally in their backyard and them going over to Clemson and going to Oklahoma and going to Alabama, man, it's, it's really brutal. And at some point you have to figure like when when does the Pac-12 uh, kind of build that fence again? It seems like it's Oregon and Washington guys right now that are at least trying to do that as much as possible. Does that make sense, uh, Rob? Like, what do we think about those two teams and what they were able to bring in this year? I mean, it's fine. I mean, like that. I, that what I think is, and this is going to sound, I don't know, like wh- whatever people can people could say like Rob super negative again, but like it's just the recruiting's just not good enough. Like Washington and Oregon patted themselves on the back and they got some, they got some good players. Um, 
in those recruiting classes. But those are, those rankings are where Notre Dame normally recruits. And Notre Dame, when we saw them on the playoff field, like had no business talent wise being in the playoff field. Like those those kind of rankings, like we're like, oh yeah, they did they did okay. Like that's not even in the top ten. Um, and that's where the Pac-12 is really in trouble because there's nobody. Um, like if you see where Washington and Oregon are now and Oregon has Oregon's got about like the best set, like, I mean, about the most focused and best set of recruiters on staff in the PAC 12. That's I mean, Washington still beat them out. Washington also had a lot of like, had some very good local kids that Oregon just doesn't have that same kind of quality or, you know, in Oregon, like they don't have a Savelle Smalls sitting around, you know, in Portland. If, if USC isn't able to, 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 to put a ring around Southern California and get the top kids and man, when USC was rolling with Pete Carroll, they recruited nationally too. They yeah. got their pick of kids in Southern California and then they went out and recruited kids from all across the country too. And I mean, they, you know, USC was famous for closing, you know, strong on signing day and they would, but they would get, you know, p- kids would be pulling the USC hat, picking the USC hat, you know, all over the country to come play at USC and that, that's just not there. And there's nobody outside of, I mean, in Oregon's done all right. I mean, you can look across and like, I mean, ASU signed a four-star running back from Ohio. I mean, there's like individual pockets where like the PAC 12 got outside and like signed some kids. But um, I think overall, if you look at the conference, it's, it's just not there. And if like, if the conference can't, if we, like, I think there are trickle down effects too. I mean, like UCLA and USC, stunk it up in recruiting in California and then signed, you know, a bunch of kids in there, like a bunch of three stars in Arizona that, you know, you look at, you look at from a, like if you're an ASU or in Arizona, like, man, like those are the kids that those programs probably need to be signing at this point. Like it's, um, they really need like the UCLA, which under Mora had some great, great recruiting classes. And, and USC really need to be picking it up and signing that talent. And, 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 and maybe some of it doesn't stick, um, you know, with the new transfer rule, there's no extra penalty here. So maybe some of those kids end up sticking around in the conference. Max, are you surprised at how bad UCLA and, and everything's relative to USC at this point, but were um, you surprised that after trying to, or seemingly uh, learning the lesson of not just recruiting on Wednesdays, as our friend Hithliday said, uh, that Chip Kelly tried to go out and really put together a class. And at the end of the day, it was out of the top 25, only two four stars, and just wasn't able to hold off the commits uh, going elsewhere in his own backyard. Well, I'm not surprised just because even when Chip Kelly was at Oregon, I mean, recruiting yeah. was never really his thing. And so yeah. to expect that, in his second stint in the Pac-12 at UCLA, I, I think is kind of crazy. Ah, uh, well. And, and that Oregon program was like the last time the Pac-12 really had a team that was legit in the the top two in the country. And, you know, with, with Kelly and, and Helfrich in his last season. But that, you know, like they, they did. They really built it on scheme. You know, like they did and being able to, quote unquote, identify, you know, diamonds in the rough, but guys that they were able to fit into their scheme. And I don't Kelly doesn't have that kind of schematic advantage anymore. Like that's long gone. Yeah. I mean, one other thing to mention when it comes to recruiting, which will certainly impact USC, is the decision, of course, for them to finally get rid of Clancy Pendergrast and their special teams coach. And Max, I figured of all people, you'd be one of the people that may have a radar of where the direction they're going to head in terms of bringing in a defensive mind. But my goodness, like 
it just seems that that program is taking a ginormous nosedive, not just as recruiting, but in just getting waxed and punched in the mouth in the first quarter by, uh, or the first half by Iowa. I mean, giving up 49 points to Iowa when this was supposed to be a statement game for this program, uh, they finally, you know, pull the trigger on Pendergast. Where do they go from here? Well, I think I wouldn't be surprised, honestly, if USC goes uh, for an NFL hire, because I, I don't think that there are really any, like slam dunk college hires. And in terms of NFL, I'm not talking about like a, a former NFL head coach or, or even like a current defensive coordinator, but maybe like a former USC player um, that is currently on staff. And I, because the, the thing is with, with the offensive coordinator job, I mean, Grant Graham Harrell, after um, Cliff Kingsbury left, I mean, he, he was kind of an out of left field uh, play just because with Helton. Yeah. It was a lot of his hires had connections to Clay, whether it was Western Kentucky or former USC guys. And Harold really worked out, at least in the first year. And so I know that there is I, I actually read a, a Bruce Feldman article today in The Athletic about um, NFL assistants that might uh, jo- join the college ranks. And one of them that he mentioned was Ryan Nielsen, who is a former USC defensive tackle, is now the Saints defensive line coach, um, who apparently uh, USC could have as a viable option. And that one was interesting to me, but I just feel that there aren't a lot of slam dunk defensive coordinator hires. And yeah. especially because I don't think USC, with all the, um, with the coaching staff potentially in flux, I don't know if there's, if they're going to get a high profile defensive coordinator hire, just because one, you don't know if you're going to get that stability. And two, it's really expensive to move out to California and to find a home to live. And I don't think that as long as Helton's there, that USC is going to be able to reel in that big name just because of the risk involved. Well, let's get into this holiday bowl here. Iowa 49 USC 24 and guys, I watched the majority of this game. I missed the first uh, quarter, but I, I watched the second quarter on and I was just now to be fair. Keaton Slovis got hurt uh, you know, about what? Three quarters of the way through the game. Um, but yeah. I don't. I don't think it really matters. I, I think Iowa just <laughs> just came out and took control of that game after the first quarter. Uh, the twenty one points, of course, you know, dropping after uh, into the second quarter. And just th- this is not Max. I know you had mentioned this was uh, a sneaky good offense with Iowa, but if you take a look at the games that they had played now, granted it was against good defenses. It wasn't like Iowa was dropping forty burgers left and right, and they just took it to USC. Yeah, and I guess what I was saying on the podcast was I, I just thought that Iowa would would control the trenches, and, and that's why the Hawkeyes would win that game. And I, I just thought what was really smart with Iowa's offensive game plan is that they utilized a lot of misdirections. They, they were um, calling a lot of runs to the edge, and those were two of USC's biggest weaknesses on defense uh, that year. And so USC's defense looked really undisciplined against the Hawkeyes, and yeah, I mean, I, I would just totally steamrolled them. I mean, they didn't even show up. I mean, like USC's defense. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it was, you almost felt like that maybe people already knew internally that Pendergast was gone and they were just like, yeah, whatever. Because the Iowa's defense offense is, is not good. 
Um, and I mean, like kudos. I mean, I, I thought USC's offense had a pretty decent showing up until when Slovis got hurt. I mean, like granted, they always had lousy field position because Iowa was just rolling and scoring. Um, but it was a they, they did all right, and uh, and of course, like of course, they gave up a special teams, you know, gaff and let, you know let Iowa run back a, <laughs> a, a a touchdown just to just to put the icing on Baxter's cake on his way out the door. Um, but I, I was shocked. I mean, even even with the uh, turnover that they had, and we knew this year that USC was going to come in with a very young defense and the injuries that they have had. A good defensive coordinator and scheme still makes a difference. And uh, I was like, we watched Tim DeRoyter and Justin Wilcox do it with Sonny Dykes guys at Cal. Like a good defensive coordinator makes a difference. And Clancy Pendergast has not made a difference in years. And it really showed up in this game. The thing that jumped out for me was the offensive line. And I know we've talked about USC's offensive line on this podcast at nauseum. But against a good defensive line in Iowa, I mean, they just got gashed over and yeah. over and over again. And not just in the sense of being able to put pressure on the quarterback and get into the backfield, but 22 total yards of rushing from this USC team. And look, we know that USC hasn't been a juggernaut on the ground, but and granted, some of those yards were from sacks and, and you know, like and all that stuff. But at the end of the day, um, that's just completely unacceptable for a team that even if they're throwing all the time, just really, really embarrassing on all fronts and. I mean, Max, we we were joking on the last podcast of USC going into the next year as the as the favorite in the Pac-12. I don't know how we can say that after just what they pulled. And yeah, they have a young defense uh, defense coming back. They have Keaton Slovis. I guess the coordinators can turn it around, but like, I don't know, man. I'm really. Do you skeptical. give them a good hire? Come on. Yeah, if, if if USC gets a really good defensive coordinator, I, I it's just like I feel like. The only, I mean, unless that a, a Pac-12, like if a Washington like gets a really good grad transfer quarterback, then sure, or or Oregon as well. But Costello, I, yeah, that would be pretty hilarious. <laughs> if Costello suits up in purple opposite that defense next season, like holy smoke! But I feel if if KJ Costello really wanted to help out his draft stock, why not go to Pullman? Oh, Ooh. that'd be that'd be nice. <laughs> but. Yeah, I, I mean, I just think USC, oh, even, even with the, the horrendous recruiting class, they're still going to be, at worst, like top three most talented in the Pac-12. They're gonna, they have the best quarterback in the Pac-12, and I, I think schedule-wise, actually, let me look at their schedule. But I mean, like for, um, I'm just trying to think. Well, I mean, they do have to go to Austin. And they do have to go to Salt Lake, which hurts. But both yeah, those I, teams I, lose I, a ton. I, I just think I think talent wise, yeah. yeah, USC should be the favorite. I have to go back and look at who's leaving from the Oregon defense. I know the whole entire offensive line is gone and their quarterback. So yes, 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 I understand that. Um, but my well, gosh, I mean, they, like well, just, they lose, the, uh-huh. they lose, they lose Troy Die. I yeah. feel like they lose at least one of their cornerbacks. Yeah. So. Yeah, but I mean, but I mean, Thibodeau and and Justin Flo, that those are two really exciting cornerstones on defense. This could be I'm such just, a brutal year next year for the Pac-12, though. I mean, like, oh, bad, oh, very, very. That's bad. such a bummer because it's just a fun. Well, it'll be even more fun to cover because, <laughs> like, you're not going to know what's going to actually happen. But oh my gosh, well, I'm sorry, Max. Go ahead. Try, go ahead. Well, I was, I'm really interested to see who Oregon hires as their new offensive coordinator. Yeah. That unit is really good. That's a year. That's going to be a season in transition. But if they get 
if they nail this hire, that that I feel like Oregon probably has the highest ceiling. But and here's the question I have about that Oregon hire, though, because <clears throat> Arroyo was really I mean, the question I, I guess I have is like, how much does Cristobal want to mold that offense in sort of his image? And how much does that sort of drive things there? Uh, because it was, I mean, the, the offense didn't change a ton when um, Arroyo took over and Cristobal just became the head coach instead of the OC. Uh, I'm interested to see that because I would like the, uh, the example I have in my head is Mora at UCLA um, who, who very much wanted to run the same sort of tough guy offense that Crystal, I mean, now grant you like Oregon was a lot more effective at it than Mora's teams were um, that sort of tough guy punch you in the mouth football um, mentality. But I, I mean, like one of the things that I think we've seen in these games is like, you know, like Clemson was able, Ohio state was probably the most dominant non option run team in college football in a long time. And Clemson shut them down running the football. I mean, like you've got to be able to throw the football. Um, I don't know. I'm interested. To, I'm really interested to see this offensive coordinator hire for Oregon. Cause they, they definitely have the money. Um, where it shakes out, I don't know. No, that's a good point because I feel like, at least with USC under Clay Helton, Helton only had to make a drastic change on offense because of the five and seventeen. Like USC was yeah. fine going pro style until they went five and seven, and then then they were like, okay, we really have to switch things up. Let's go to air raid. And with the season that Oregon had, Cristobal is not going to be in any rush to switch to switch out um, what he has on offense, even yeah. though. I mean, there were some red flags there, but given the end results, I feel like Cristobal is going to be fine staying as is. Well, let's talk about a little bit more bad news here in terms of the cheese it bowl. <laughs> but we are live from the Vivid Seats studio, Coley and Optional, and very thankful for Vivid Seats for sponsoring this podcast the entire year. If you haven't already and you haven't used the Vivid Seats app, download it on your Android or iPhone. And if you're looking for tickets and haven't used them before, use the promo code OVERTIME and get up to $100 off your first uh, ticket purchase. And they will automatically enroll you in their loyalty program where you can uh, sign up and get new, uh, new offers and different discounts and all that stuff. I used it. I purchased my uh, tickets when I went to the Arizona-Washington game, as we've said over and over again. If you haven't downloaded the app, please do. It helps out the podcast. And um, th- there are so many ticket sites out there. So if you're actually looking for a good deal and you haven't been able to take advantage of that promo code, do so, especially with college football um, coming to a close and college basketball in full swing. Um, let's get into the, the cheese at bull here. Air Force 31, Washington State 21. And we had talked a little bit about... Now, Max... More credit to you. You had taken uh, Air Force in this game. We had all talked about the possibility. Oh, no, Rob, Rob, Rob took Air Force. I oh. took Washington State. Oh. I took, well, yeah. <laughs> I, I took, you, I took uh, Iowa and Washington State. So, yeah, there's one blemish on my record. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Well, shout out to you, Rob. Good job. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I was more interested in the over because it was so high, and we were talking about how, like, neither of these teams were going to stop each other, which is Pretty much the case, although Air Force was able to put the brakes on a little bit. Um, but this was a this is a clock management game, and I, I know that that term can be thrown around flippantly oftentimes. But the fact that, that in their first drive, I think it took like 14 minutes and like eight seconds or something. I'm exaggerating a little bit, but uh, Air Force was just able to methodically march down the field, and there was no answer from the uh, Washington State defense rep. No, there was uh, the the Washington State defense. And we talked about this uh, on the pod. The Air Force 
I'm sorry, the Washington State defense was stronger against the run than they were against the pass. So they did. It wasn't as bad as it could have been. Um, and they were able to to slow Air Force down somewhat, um, at least on the inside. But uh, on those perimeter runs, like Air Force was getting seven yards a pop, um, and then just letting the clock run. And it was it was it was pretty bad out there for that the, the, that Cougar defense. They got they got exposed. Three hundred seventy-one yards on the ground, Max. Yeah, I mean, Air, give credit to Air Force. They uh, they showed up against the Pac-12 this year. Whether it was Colorado in the regular season or Washington State this season, neither Pac-12 defense could stop Air Force at all. It was pretty crazy. If Air Force was in the Pac-12, Max, where would they have placed in the Pac-12 South? Oh, oh boy. In the South? Uh, I don't know, but I I would love to have a triple option team in the Pac-12. That would be awesome. Well, Arizona had its chance a few years ago and uh, decided (laughs) otherwise. <laughs> what stood out for me in this game was the fact that, and this happens with A raid sometimes. It's one of the weaknesses where Aaron Gordon uh, had a fine game. Uh, I'm sorry, Anthony Gordon had a fine game. You know, 28 for 42, no picks, three touchdowns, 351 yards. But there are just those drives where Washington State's offense just peters out and it becomes really inefficient. And when that happens and the other team is controlling the ball, I mean, this is what happens. It's a 31-21 game where, frankly, it just didn't seem like Washington was Washington State was ever in this game. Uh, I, I realize that at half it was 17-14, but just the feel of that game, Rob, was it was always like ah, like I just I just don't see a scenario where they're going to be able to claw their way out of this yeah it's tough because I, I i i'm of the school i guess you could say that I, I don't really i don't care too much about you know time of possession it's more about did you score when you had opportunity you know when you had the ball what'd you do with it um because generally i mean like they do have to give the ball back to you after they get done with it i think though what is was interesting was that it, it felt like air force because washington state is such a pass heavy team they really rely on their quarterback being in rhythm. And it felt like it felt like there were times when Gordon just and the receivers just weren't in rhythm at all uh, in that game. And that really hurt them. So I don't know. It may be something I go back and look at uh, for tracking uh, in the model. Yeah, I'd say everybody but Brandon Arcanado, who was just all over yeah. the place in this game. Yes. 11 receptions. He had more than 150 yards, touchdown and stuff. He was, I mean, like it, it is it, we, we did our family feud <laughs> He was like the sneaky uh, wide receiver that was in the top five. And it shows it again uh, in this game. But yeah, it was just, I don't know, Max, like what's the ceiling on this Washington state team? I guess we saw it when they had a good defensive coordinator and they were like top 10 for a while, but was that kind of like a fleeting moment or is there, is there any way that Leach can get this program uh, back to that pinnacle for them? Well, I also think that, it was during like a, a, a pretty down period for the Pac-12. So, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if Leach has reached his ceiling already at Washington State. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, yeah. Washington State was, I mean, Leach, where he has this program now is really, really impressive. But I think the Gardner Minshew year and and even like the, um, yeah, I feel like the Gardner Minshew year when, when you got, outstanding play from your quarterback and you got a decent enough defense. I, I, with this season, like when they lost their safety, like right before the season started and, and he went to the supplemental draft, that was a huge, huge blow uh, to that team and the defense. I mean, yeah, it definitely took, took a step back. And like, I, I think that Washington state is like a fringe top 25 uh, program. Like that's like right now they're ceiling unless they have like, a couple of 
I, I guess, fortunate circumstances. But, I mean, this was also a Washington State team that I feel was a little unlucky this year. Yeah. Because they had, let me count, they had, I mean, the, the Oregon loss, I feel like they should have won. The UCLA loss, I feel like they should have won. The Arizona State game was a coin flip. And so, yeah, like they went six and seven, easily could have gone eight and five this year, and, and, and they would have been a top 30 team. Well, it's already been decided that KJ Costello is coming back there as the grad transfer. So I'm sure that, that there is more room to grow for the Washington State program. No, I, I, I'm with you, Max. And it sounds like, Rob, you agree in the sense that Washington State had some luck that wasn't on their side this year. Yeah, absolutely. Like all in those games that uh, Max mentioned, I I just I, I'm curious because we forget like they technically have an open position for their defensive coordinator because they have they've had the interim all season. I mean, if Leach's ceiling is basically like, <clears throat> what can he what can he get defensive coordinator wise? Um, because they're going to have to be they're going to have like you're not going to be able to recruit the kind of like you can you can mostly recruit like Leach does you know three star players come out with a banging scheme and you know you will occasionally run into you know teams like Washington that just sort of have you figured out but mostly you'll be able to score points. Uh, that doesn't work as well on defense. Like you, it, if you want to put together a good defense, you usually have to have some, you know, four-star players out there uh, or guys that you've really developed uh, because a lot of it's reaction time and athleticism because, you know, the offense has the initiative. You know, it worked when he had Alex Grinch um, and a couple of those years, the offense didn't even work that well, but the, the defense was there. there. The offense has been clicking the last two years, top 10 in the last two years, both years. But... You know what? What's he going to do on the defensive side of the ball? Can he figure it out? Can you know Washington? Because he—they're he, not going to have the resources to go out there and get any kind of name. So he's got to really identify somebody young, like he did with Grinch. And I mean, is that lightning in a bottle? I don't know. I mean, that—that's the part that I sort of wonder at. I mean, but if they could get even to the point where they were in the fifties defensively. They're a they're a, like a fringy top ten team with the as good as the offense has been. I was impressed with the Tracy Clay's hire when it happened because it goes into what, exactly what you were saying, Rob. Where they didn't have the resources. Yeah, that's right, um, yeah, Clay's was a head coach. He was also a defensive coordinator and pretty well respected. If you take a look at the defenses under uh, his tutelage at Minnesota, they were they were pretty good. They weren't you know going to blow the world up, but for the talent that he had, I thought he did a good job. And then to come over to Washington State, he had some issues at his previous employer, um, so yeah. I think they kind of got him on the cheap, and it just didn't work out, which was a, a total disappointment because I thought that um, he might be somebody that they can get for one or you know, maybe two to three years before he bounces somewhere else. And um, I don't know. It, it, you're right. I think that's probably where the uh, where kind of it hinges on in terms of Washington State's ability to, to make it to the next level. Um, anything else we want to talk about on the cheese bowl? Well, I just want to give a shout out to the uh, University of Miami and Louisiana Tech for playing an honorary cheese bowl in, in the <laughs> Independence Bowl. <laughs> what was the score? <laughs> 14 to nothing. Yeah, yeah. Oh, that's right. My gosh. You take- on, on, I, w- I wish that Louisiana Tech didn't score in the final minute just so that way it would have they would have won seven to nothing. Uh, I feel like that's a much more embarrassing score to lose by than 14 nothing. I love watching those games. That one I actually didn't watch, but just sitting there just going, this is 
this is terrible. And, and just eating the popcorn as you're watching it, it's like a car crash. But um, Manny Diaz could be fired and like next at the end of next year oh if it doesn't get better. And that's I mean, crazy. He, yeah, he's in he's in Willie Taggart mode right now. Yeah. Uh, let's get to the Rose Bowl here because you want to get to the granddaddy of them all. Number eight, Wisconsin. Number six, Oregon. The line right now is Wisconsin by two and a half. Max, let's go with you first. I, I think this is a fascinating matchup. I think Oregon, for all for all the noise and all all the stuff, like they they put together a really solid year. They had an opportunity to make it even a little bit better in terms of their ability to beat Auburn if they were able to do that. I think they would have been in the playoff picture. But even even outside that, just waxing Utah, being able to, for the most part, uh, push through the Pac-12 uh, conference, and now to be able to have a really solid Washington, uh, sorry, Wisconsin team in front of them right now. Uh, I'm curious what you think about this matchup and whether or not they're a live dog here. I guess with Wisconsin... I, I'm really impressed with, with the Badgers just because I think really highly of Ohio State and in both mat, in both Ohio State-Wisconsin matchups, the Badgers gave them a damn good game. And I know that they Wisconsin, I mean, like they had the really disappointing uh, upset loss to Illinois, but I don't, mm, I mean, I, I'm really interested to see what Rob has to say with, with his metrics, but I just think, I guess the interesting thing is that I mean, Wisconsin, obviously, they have Jonathan Taylor, and, but Oregon just did a really nice job, um, for the most part, containing Zach Moss the previous game. But I just feel like with Wisconsin this year and the reason why that they bounced back, uh, at least last year, it seemed like that it was all Jonathan Taylor. And this year, it just feels a little more balanced with a uh, Colin under center compared to like Alex Hornibrook or I, I forget the other quarterback they were using last year too. And also the defense under, under Jim Leonard is really, really impressive. And I think that that, I think Oregon could have some trouble scoring. Yeah. Rob, before we get into your numbers, just want to highlight how good Jonathan Taylor is. 299 carries, 1,909 yards, 21 touchdowns this, this season and averaging 6.3 yards per carry. I mean, this guy is just a monster. Yeah, yeah, and Wisconsin. I mean, it's weird because it, you know, years ago, Jonathan Taylor would have been a Heisman, you know, finalist at least one of his years <laughs> that he'd been great. Um, and you know, I don't think he's gotten an invite to New York. Um, yeah, I mean, they've been phenomenal, uh, and they, 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 they grade out. This is interesting because uh, I, you know, I, I reran the model this morning, you know, with the bull data that's come in, which is some, you know, cross conference data, which is interesting and, and can reweight things across the, you know, the entire, uh, ranking it's, it's a toss up now. Um, you know, Wisconsin comes in at number seven, um, Oregon's at number 10, but there's such a tight grouping of teams between seven and 10 that the model basically just has Wisconsin as like a very, very slight favorite with a 52% win probability, but the spreads at zero, um, as a pick em game. It's the number seven offense for the Badgers against the number six defense for the Ducks. Uh, and that's really the premier matchup. This is going to be really, you know, exciting to see Wisconsin. They're, 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 they're great at a couple of things. They don't go three and out very often. They, they put up a very solid yards per play number, you know, controlling for opponent. They're number 11 in explosive drives. They're number 25 at drive efficiency. So they, they don't always uh, manage to stick it out and get points. Uh, but like Oregon's great there. They're at number four, but 
this Wisconsin team, they're a heavy run team. They're number four in effective rush. They're number 72 in effective pass. But that's mostly just because they're leaning into their strength. Like, Wisconsin's going to, to run the football at you. Um, but like you said, Oregon was able to, to really hamper Zach Moss um, uh, in that game and really shut down a lot of the inside runs. Oregon's at number seven in a defensive effective rush and a number 10 in, in effective pass. So that's really, I think, going to be the, the highlight matchup. Wisconsin's got a special teams advantage. They're at number 24 in special teams versus number 53 for the Ducks. Uh, and that really reflects like Wisconsin's got some uh, very solid place kicking. So keep an eye on college kickers in this game. Uh, on the other side of the football, Wisconsin, the, I had some Wisconsin. Wait, some let, let's let's get the, to that in a sec because I want to yeah. highlight some of the players to look out for um, on the on the offense because obviously we have Jonathan Taylor. Like you mentioned, Max, Jack Cohn, he's fine. You know, 70% completion rate, which is great. 17 touchdowns, four interceptions, 2,500 yards. So, you know, it's kind of funny. It's like almost as if I'm repeating myself and talking about Iowa's offense, but I <laughs> – <laughs> but just with a with a more proficient running attack, obviously with Jonathan Taylor. But I mean, they have a couple receivers to keep a lookout for. Quintez Cephas is like one of my favorite names. Uh, Fifty two receptions for eight hundred forty two yards and six touchdowns on the year. So none of the receivers are going to blow you away in terms of their numbers because this is like Rob mentioned, such a heavy ground attack. But anybody else that our listeners should kind of keep a lookout for when they're watching the game? Yeah. Well. Um, what- the, well, this unit isn't as like highly publicized as it was last year, but Wisconsin still has some grinders on the offensive line. Yeah. Uh, their center, Tyler Bat, I, um, I don't think I'm pronouncing it right, Tyler Bazdez, something like that. He's uh, All-America. Um, and I think that that's actually going to be the difference in this game compared to the Utah game, just because Utah's offensive line, they had some questions going into the game and, and Oregon, Oregon handled the trenches uh, really on, on both sides of the ball. And I don't, and Wisconsin's offensive line is definitely a step up from Utah's offensive line. So I don't think that you'll see uh, Thibodeau in, in, in the backfield every other play like you did in Santa Clara. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for bringing that up. The offensive lineman always ends up escaping us because sometimes it's just so hard to keep a lookout. But, yeah, they always have a pretty solid uh, O-line. Rob, is there anybody else we missed? No, no. Okay, what's, what's going on with that defense? So this is the number 17 offense on the Ducks against the 17 defense for the Badgers. But they they are a bit of an interesting matchup because the Badgers are number one in drive efficiency. So they they find ways to get off the field. Even if you get a first down, um, you know, the Badgers find ways to pick their spots, get you in a third down and get you off the field. Um, Oregon's number 92 in drive efficiency. They they don't always finish drives is <laughs> a good way to describe the ducks. They're not, they're not a hugely efficient offense, but they are explosive offense. They're number nine in explosive drives and Wisconsin grades out a little worse there. They're at number 32. So uh, I guess the thing to watch here in this game is, you know, uh, are the Badgers able to get the ducks off the field or, or do the ducks, uh, you know, put up big plays and put up points. Um, but they're, they're both, both of these units are fairly balanced in their run pass splits. Uh, the uh, the Badgers are 23 in effective rush, 25 in effective pass. The Ducks are a little worse at, at running the football. Number 40 in effective rush and number 24 in effective pass. But the not like the the in the era of big offenses, I like to describe it like Oregon's offense. Even though they both grade out at 17, Oregon's offense has a bit of an advantage here, uh, and I would expect like both teams to be able to put up points in this game. 
A couple of players on my end to look out for uh, Zach Bond and Chris Orr are both uh, first and second team, all Big Ten respectively. Uh, Zach Bond, 19 and a half tackles for a loss, and Chris Orr, 13 and a half. They also have another guy named uh, Jack Sanborn. So, like, all three of their linebackers out there are pretty nasty. And uh, if you if you really want to take a look, and we'll make sure to tweet this out, and, and I'll try to put the link up on our um, – uh, on this podcast uh, feed is Hithliday did some film breakdown. So we'll make sure to send that out as the game progresses so people can see that because it's quite good. And he's really good at pointing out like, hey, check out this guy and check out this guy. I don't know, Max. Like, I, I just. Ugh. Yeah, I, I actually I have much stronger leans on the other two uh, uh, Pac-12 bowl games that we'll be talking about later. This one. Uh, I don't know. I, like, I, I guess what it comes down to for me is that I just think that this is the best offensive line that Oregon will face this year. And I think that Jonathan Taylor should be able to get his. And I also think that Wisconsin, I mean, yes, they had the disappointing loss to Illinois, but their other two losses came to Ohio state. And, and, and even though uh, Ohio state was able to pull away at the end in both those games, Wisconsin was very competitive in both and Oregon. They, I mean, they have uh, the Auburn loss and they have the Arizona state loss, but, I don't know. I, I just think that I think Oregon's going to have trouble stopping Wisconsin on the ground um, just because Jonathan Taylor is so amazing. And then I just even with it, did, has it been announced whether Arroyo is coaching this game or, or is he or did he? Uh, because I'm really I'm really interested to see that just because if he if he isn't there, will that potentially open up the offense more? But. Yeah, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna take Wisconsin in the two and a half. I don't I don't love it at all, but yeah, that that's where I'm leaning for now. One thing to mention is Micah Pittman is back uh, at wide receiver, so another option for Herbert to throw to, um, particularly Jawan Johnson kind of getting into the fold. And I know that they're after out of uh, Jacob Breeland and all that stuff, but has another option. And he was a pretty promising young kid coming in uh, to the program. So uh, keep a lookout for that. Rob, who are you taking? Uh, well, Arroyo is going to coach. Um, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna take the Ducks with the points. Like I, I, I like. I, the more I think about it, the more like this feels like a really, really even matchup. Now, I mean, I'm, I'm, you're not getting enough points where like you know Wisconsin could easily just win by a field goal, even though it's a real tight game. Yeah, I'm definitely not betting this game. I'm just, uh, I love that it's, it's really a solid matchup, and the Pac-12 has a really quality team going up against a uh, an opponent that they uh, have a chance at beating. Let's move on to the Alamo Bowl, but let's do it right after this. I'm Alex Rodriguez, and I'm Jason Kelly from Bloomberg. This is the deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is not as simple as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened up so many more doors. The show is called The The Deal. Deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them it's this willingness decisiveness and resilience that sets marines apart with our fighting spirit we don't just fight battles we win them marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown and through adaptable problem solving we do just that learn more at marines.com all right we are back 
And poor Utah. I know we have a lot of Utah listeners, and uh, my apologies for falling all the way to the Alamo Bowl after just a hell of a year. Uh, and one where they finally got over the hump in the Pac-12 South, they got to the title game, and uh, I really do hope that the program moves forward in terms of it seems like they've been able to put together a solid recruiting class after this. It seems like the coaching staff has been cohesive. They signed uh, Scaly to a an extension, I believe. So in any case, it seems like the foundation for Utah football is there, and they have a fascinating match matchup max against a texas team that is underperformed but is filled with talent and and i don't know whether or not they're, they're going to show up though oh you don't know if texas is going to show up yeah correct oh i don't know if Utah's going to show up Ooh, okay yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> because i mean going from basically winning and, and you're into the college football playoff to now not even playing a new year's six team against an unranked texas team Oh man, that, that screams flat spot to me for Utah. And I know that Kyle Whittingham has an unbelievable record uh, in bowl games and really uh, when he has a lot of time to prep, but I just think that this is a different situation because Utah's never really been ranked this high uh, before. And, and then, well, besides the sugar bowl year, but um, has really been like ranked this high and then just fallen on its face and now has to play in a bowl game that they think that they're probably better than. And so I think that you could definitely see a flat spot here for Utah. And then also more concerning, at least from a personnel perspective, uh, Texas had a lot of injuries this year, especially on defense. But I, I think with the time off, you're going to see a healthier Texas team. But the, the big strength of this team, I'd say, is the wide receivers with uh, DuVernay and Colin Johnson. And those are two, uh, like, even like size-wise, they're, they're, they're big dudes. And Utah, not only do they have their safety, Julian Blackman, who's going to miss this game due to injury, uh, their cornerback, Jalen Johnson's also uh, sitting out for this one to prep for the draft. And I think that Texas is going to be able to move the ball through the air on the Utes. Oh, Rob, it's uh... (laughs) but so actually, Max, let me ask you this question, though. Why would Texas show up to this game? I I just think that maybe like just like making a statement. And I, I guess with Texas, just like ending it on the, on the right foot and, and, and they're getting a chance to knock off a top, a top 25 team to end its season. And then maybe like, and I don't like Herman, I feel is under fire just because of where Texas ended this season. But I mean, you're still getting to face a Utah team that was one win away from being in the college football playoff versus on the other side, you're, you're facing an unranked Texas team. So I think, if anything, that Texas has more motivation. And especially because Herman has been so strong as um, an underdog coach, um, even though I think it's like only a 15-game sample size. But when when Texas has been like a a touchdown underdog, Herman, at at least in terms of covering, and also winning outright, I mean, he's been really strong. Okay. Do Do you share the same sentiments, Rob? I hate this game. (laughs) This is this is is like because at some level you're like, oh my god, this is like this could be Georgia Texas from last season all over again, where Georgia doesn't make the playoff and is just like, well, you know, like mails it in for the bowl game, and then everybody's like, Texas is back. I I like, but this game also like for all the uncertainty that is there for Utah, particularly Blackman sitting it out. Texas fired its 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 offensive coordinator and its defensive coordinator. <laughs> it is going to have replacement. I mean, not like the actual replacements, but like interim OCs and DCs in for this game. 
Like there's just there's a whole mess going on, and the and the the Big Twelve has thus far underperformed in bowl season. I mean, not just Oklahoma getting smoked, but Iowa State didn't show up in the second half against Notre Dame. Oklahoma State needed uh, to, needed to be plus two on turnovers to keep it close versus Texas A&M. Um, the model has adjusted the Big Twelve downward, and this game comes at Texas comes in at twenty five, Utah's at eight. I mean, I, I hate that the model has it here right now because the model has Utah as a, four, a little over two touchdown favorite, 14 and 11, 14.11. It's the defense. I mean, the problem for the, the Horns, I mean, their defense stinks. They're at number 59. Uh, the Utah offense, I still like what they're going to have coming into this game. They're at number 15. Um, what the horns do well is drive efficiency, but a lot of that was the play caller. I don't know how, how well that they're going to, you know, how good they're going to be at getting off the field. They stink at explosive, giving up explosive plays. They're at number 76 there. That's something this Utah offense has been good at number 14. I don't know. Like they're this, that part, just that part could get like, I, I think Utah's going to be able to score, move the ball um, on the other side. The, the Horns' offense is decent. They're number twenty in beta rank. You, you know the on the uh, the the Utes are at number eight. Um, the Utes haven't been great at drive efficiency. Like this scaly defense is not about uh, you know picking their spots to get off the field. They really just don't give up big plays. Um, that'll be tougher with Blackburn out. Texas has a good quarterback. They have some very very talented wide receivers. Uh, do they have the offensive line? And the, I mean, for the most part, I don't know that they did this year. Um, to really, you know, keep the QB upright and get the ball out. That, that I think will be sort of the interesting matchup in here is the Foto and Ana, you know, against that Texas offensive line. I, I mean, I, I, if the Utes lose, I mean, lose this game, I will be shocked. Um, I, I, I like him more than a touchdown though. A couple of players to look out for. I mean, obviously you mentioned the quarterback Sam Ellinger has had a decent year. Like he was a Heisman hopeful at the start of the year and has not uh, followed through on that front. But still, 3,400 yards, completing about 65% of his passes, 29 touchdowns, 9 interceptions. Yeah, you know, when it comes to rushing, they kind of have a running back by committee. Three guys have more than 100 uh, carries between them, or all of them completing more than 550 yards this year. Receiving one of the players to keep a lookout for is Devin Duvernay, who has 103 receptions, 1,200 yards, and eight touchdowns. He went out in this last game with a shoulder injury, as listed as questionable. I'm assuming he's going to play, uh, but keep a lookout for him because he's definitely the top option for Ellinger and uh, senior wide receiver. He's about 5'11 and number six. So if he's out, playing that's probably a good thing for the longhorns uh i don't know guys <laughs> i want to take utah so bad just because Whittingham has done such a good job my question for you max is you've talked about how utah is a slow starting team i'm wondering if you're thinking about fading them do you think the first half line is a better option or just the entire game uh i i, I think with this game that you'll see utah's intensity level pretty early on so I, I think that if Texas, if Texas is leading at halftime, I think that they're going to cover the game. So, yeah, I think that, yeah, basically, I think that if you do think that Texas is the right side, that both both first half and full game are, are, are good plays. Man, does that uh, lack of an offensive and defensive coordinator give you any pause in terms of fading Utah? It scares me a bit, but I just think that Utah is really in a, in a poor spot. And also, I mean, 
the loser of the Pac-12 championship game has been horrendous in bowl games. Oh, I didn't even look at that. Okay. You're going to take the seven. Rob, you're going to take the seven. I also, I also love the over and it's only, it, it's 55. Oh, especially with all that. Oh, that's okay. Uh, I'm going to definitely put that one aside uh, just because you're right. I, th- I think that Utah is going to be able to put up some major plays. They always do. And to do it. So against a, a team that doesn't have their defensive coordinator and already is bad at <laughs> giving plays, that's a good call. Yeah, um, I just think that you're going to see a lot of explosive plays in this game. And I think that 55 is too low. Okay. Um, I will lay the points begrudgingly. Um, and this is more just a, as a high five to our Utah fans, but um, I'm probably going to bet on that over. That's a good call. Let's move on to the Sun Bowl. Tuesday, December 31st at 11 a.m. Woo! Uh, Arizona State is a four and a half point favorite. You talk about the last game being freaking crazy town. This this game, I don't even know what to do with. Florida State coming off of just an awful year. They fired their coach two years in with Willie Taggart, and he's already gotten himself a new job. You have Ito Benjamin out. Brandon Ayuk is out of this game. Um, uh, I, I, we showed a video of Herm Edwards with a sombrero telling people it's, it's time to practice. Like uh, Rob, I have no idea what to do with this. <laughs> this this game is terrible. I mean, uh, Ayuk's out. They fired their offensive coordinator. Inu Benjamin's out. Um, yeah, but Jaden Daniels is playing, I guess. And their their defense was their offense was not not in any way good this season. They were at seventy seven in beta rank. It's flipped a little bit. So Florida State is in beta rank right now because the ACC has played a little better than expected in in the polls. Uh, is a two-point favorite in the model here, but I, heck if I know. I mean, I, I don't, Norvell's not coaching this, so uh, it's the, a lot of the outgo, or, you know, the the guys that will be outgoing will be still on staff to finish out this bowl game for Florida State. Um, you could argue maybe that they want to show up and um, play well and maybe impress the new coaching staff in but... El Paso, Texas. I mean, I don't know. Who knows? Rob, did you say beta rank had Florida state as a two point favorite? Yeah. I mean, but it's, it's entirely based on the way like that, that has flipped from the way it was before the bowl game started. So ASU was a favorite before the bowl game started, but Given all the games that have happened um, and the opponent adjustments that have been made in the model based on the bowl games that have happened, Florida State is now grades out a little higher than ASU. Because I was going to say I'm taking Florida State outright in this game, and I thought I was going to be on an island, but. Wow, no. that beta rank has it. Okay, I, I feel more confident. Why are you going to take Like Danny Gonzalez isn't even there, and like, I don't know. (laughs) <laughs> so th- that's a bold move so four they're getting four and a half um so that would probably give you what plus 170 yeah plus 180 okay um what leads you max to just wanting to take him straight up i just think that arizona state's offense i mean without benjamin and iuk i, I just think that daniels is really going to struggle um, these are two teams with really bad offensive lines and so i think you're going to see a lower scoring game and so I, I just feel like with the lower scoring game that it's, it's basically it's, it's better to take a money line, especially when I think that the teams are so even. And so I'll, I'll gladly take near two to one when I think that this is a coin flip game. Rob, do you feel like breaking this game down? I mean, it's, it's hard to say, right? I mean, like, so here's the, here's the breakdown. I'll just give it real quick. Like, 
Uh, Arizona State's offense grades out at 77. They, they stink at drive efficiency. <laughs> 108 there. Uh, Florida State's defense is at 48. Florida State doesn't have a huge defensive uh, run pass split, 61 versus 40. Uh, Arizona State was terrible at running the football. I totally get, you know, Benjamin not coming back behind that offensive line. They graded out at 91 in effective rush. Uh, number 48 in effective pass, but grain of salt there because Ayuk is off to the NFL. Real quick, the, the Seminoles were 54 in offensive beta rank. Um, but they they were sneaky because like they actually had a good play caller in Kendall Bryles, um, and they were 12th in drive efficiency. I don't expect that number to hold. I mean, if I get, I think Bryles might be coaching this game. I have to look. I don't. Um, I don't think Bryles is coaching this game. Then I'm then th- th- throw that number 12 out the window. <laughs> well, because... let, me, let me let me see if he is. Oh, actually, you know what? Never he is. Oh, well, so he's a good play caller. Um, and, you know, that's a definite advantage because they're going to the ASU there because they promoted internally. Uh, they're going to have their new guy, I believe, calling plays here. And it'll be his first time calling plays. Yeah. I mean, they, and they stink at drive efficiency. They're at number 92 there. Uh, what they do sort of well is they create some negative drives, which is they, they do force some three and outs. And Florida State's been terrible at that. They're at number eight, 85 there. Um, but Florida State's a more pass-heavy offense, number 33 versus 81, an effective rush. Yeah, that's bad news for ASU because ASU is better against the run, number 31, an effective rush, but number 60, an effective pass. Their their pass coverage and pass rush just are, have not been there this season. ASU has a slight advantage in the special teams, number 41 versus 67. I don't know. I mean... I guess if I look at it and I have to pick, like the only person that I think is really good at their job as a play caller is Kendall Bryles, and I will go with Kendall Bryles. Okay, a couple of players. Despite the fact that he should, he's like a ter- like he was there for all of that crap at Baylor. <laughs> yeah, besides being a terrible person, I'll besides say being that. a potentially terrible person, like yes. <laughs> uh, a couple of players to look out for: uh, Terramont Terry who is a wide receiver. He's a sophomore for Florida State. He has more than 1,000 yards and eight touchdowns. He's kind of the top threat. I mean, everybody below him, um, nobody has more than 400 yards on the team. Cam Akers, of course, is somebody to keep a lookout for. 1,144 yards, 14 touchdowns on the year. So gets a lot of carries. He has 231 on the year. But I don't know. That that's not like if both of you guys are on top of that, that... I mean, I, I'm going to definitely uh, – I'll take those points and may, maybe sprinkle a little bit on that money line. Um, anything else about the Sun Bowl? Has there ever been a good Sun Bowl? Uh, There's a legendary Sun Bowl. Well, yeah, there, there, Sun yeah, Bowl it is legendary. <laughs> <laughs> is there any, is there any uh, legendary in a good way Sun Bowls? I mean, there's a photo of Lane Kiffin in a sombrero. Facts. Well, there you have it. All the picks – for all the bowls and we'll start thinking of something to do. Like I know we have a lot of guests that I would love to have on to, on the show uh, because probably by the time we're done with our next episode, we won't have any bowls to cover anymore. So I'm sure we'll do a, a pre a review of all the bowls that happened. Uh, maybe a, a recap on the season and then keep a lookout. Stay tuned throughout the off season. Cause we're going to have definitely some uh, basketball to cover. And then just some interesting guests that I want to bring on the show. So uh, guys, uh, by the way, Max, what's going on at sports illustrated uh, right now? I know you guys got a ton going on. Yeah. So uh, just with gambling, I mean, a lot of the bowls have already been played, but we still have picks for the rest of the bowl games. Uh, my best bet actually for SI was, uh, Texas when it was seven and a half. 
Um, so I'll be, and I, 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 that's like one of actually the few pregame bowl bets that I've made. Like a lot of them ha- have just been live just to like get a gauge of what kind of effort I'm going to get from these teams, just because I don't want to be on the wrong end of what, like, I just remember last year, um, I bet Purdue when they were playing Auburn in the music city bowl, just because I didn't think that Auburn would come up, would show up at all. And Auburn showed up and I think they dropped like 70 on them. It was like one of the most disturbing bets I've ever had. (laughs) So just like always just be careful betting bowl games. But I just think with, with this, like I know that I'm putting myself in a similar position if Utah actually cares about this bowl game, but yeah, I just think that this is a classic flat spot for the youths. What are, but well, this, let me let oh, me ask ahead. you this: What are a couple other uh, bowls that you have on your radar here outside of the Pac-12? Uh, for going forward, well, actually, one of my biggest bets was North Carolina. Um, I just I just thought that Temple was extremely overrated, and North Carolina was less than a touchdown. And I really I think Sam Howell's amazing. Uh, let me see for if there's any ones left. Uh, oh, um, actually for tomorrow, not sure how many of our listeners are going to, um, be really in tune with this, but I, I really like Western Kentucky, uh, against Western Michigan. I think Western Kentucky is actually really strong and they have one of the better, um, their defense is really, really good. And I think that they can slow down Western Michigan. And, and I just always have trouble, uh, trusting Mac teams in bowl games, uh, Mississippi state, Louisville. This one's tricky just because Louisville's run defense is atrocious and, and, and the Bulldogs have an, an outstanding running back in Kylan Hill. But I just think that the Bulldogs, I just think that th- this season has been a disaster. And I think that their um, head coach, Joe, Joe Moorhead, is, is basically one foot out the door. And Scott Satterfield, with all that time to prep, I think that Louisville will win that game outright. Uh, let me see. Oh, uh, Baylor, Georgia in the Sugar Bowl. Georgia is basically playing a, a they're like, I feel like this is a second string Georgia team and we might get a similar uh, result to uh, last year's Georgia versus big 12 bowl game with Texas. And I really, I think Matt rule is an outstanding head coach. And so I think Baylor can definitely keep that one tight. And yeah, th- those were a couple of the ones remaining that st- that stand out. I would love to see Georgia just tank two. <laughs> two years in a row because we were watching that Texas Georgia game last year, Rob, and Oh, Oh man, it was fun to watch. Yeah. I mean, I, but I guess I would also flip that and say like, man, the big 12 has been really disappointing. And a lot of the LSU coaches had mentioned to a beat reporter sort of privately, you know, off the record before the game that they thought that Oklahoma was about the fifth best team that they would play this season. And it, it looked about right. So I, <laughs> I'm interested to see that there. I'd be surprised to see Georgia totally come out flat just because a lot of these guys were on that team last year. I'm with you, Max. I like that Western Kentucky uh, beta ranks. Got that about six and a half right now. Clayton White is the D.C. uh, at Western Kentucky. I'm surprised he hasn't gotten uh, picked up by somebody yet because he's a really solid defensive coordinator. um, And they do have a good defense. Maybe USC. Clay Houghton, bring back the West. Oh, he should, I mean, he was a guy I thought Arizona should have, I mean, or any, like, if Mike Leach made that call, that would be a great hire. Um, 
right out the right out the gate. But the, th- yeah. the thing is, that the USC fan base would melt down if Clay Helton brought in another person from one. <laughs> it was such a bummer. It's like he is legitimately like uh, him, Marcus Freeman at Cincinnati. I mean, there's a couple of really solid. Uh, group of five DCs out there that haven't been picked up so far this off season um, that somebody should be reaching out because I would, I don't know, like USC fans. I mean, maybe they would be happier if they got somebody with NFL experience, but without play calling experience, but that's a risk. I'd rather take somebody that has play calling experience. Uh, you know, we'll see. Yeah. But that, that, I, that Mississippi state one, I'm, I'm interested in, uh, that one because Satterfield is a good coach. You feel like the um, the additional bowl practice, like anything, you know, he, he's he's proven to be such a good coach that you would you would almost take it as like in, the more time he gets with his team, they'll be better. Uh, and you're right that the Mississippi State team, like they just never gelled on offense. And people, Moorhead's a sort of an offensive guru, but it was all they were all defense last season. They had the best defense uh, other than Clemson last season and beta rank. And all those guys are, I mean, most of their top players are gone and it just has not worked. And they still finished eight and five that year, which was crazy. I mean, that defense was outstanding. Yeah. And then also, I mean, with Mississippi state, I I was reading that their starting quarterback got punched in a team fight and now they're, and now they're switching up quarterbacks. So that's good. That's good. Yes. So just like there's been, I feel like chemistry issues all over with this team. And I, I I just think Louisville like really well coached team. And even though like their, their big weakness is, is actually a strength for Mississippi state. Yeah. Satterfield just has a really strong track record with, with, with bowl games and, and with games with a lot of time to prep in general, Rob, what's going on at sharp college football and your thoughts on the Kansas State Navy game because I know you have them. <laughs> That's fun. I mean, the Kansas State has a uh, well. We'll talk Kansas State Navy first because that's going to be a fun game. That game is is super tight uh, in the model right now. It's got uh, Beta Rank has Navy as actually Beta Rank. It's not tight anymore. Like as the adjustments have come in and the uh, the Big Twelve has been adjusted down a bit. Beta Rank has Navy is almost a seven point favorite in that game. Um, but Kansas state's got a solid defense um, and, and they should be able to put it together offensively a bit in that game. That should be a, a real fun game to watch because Kansas state's defense is pretty disciplined. And I think they should be able to stay in that game. But Kansas, isn't Kansas state's run defense atrocious because I remember doing like research on Kansas and yeah, I, I, I remember that their run defense was absolutely abysmal. Uh, yeah, you're right. There's a big split. They're number 59 in effective rush. They're number 17 in effective pass. That is not where you want to be going into a game with Navy. Um, we'll see. I mean, like it's, I don't know that that's something that they can necessarily fix before the game kicks off, but, um, they, they do have a good DC, so they should be able to do this. I would expect them to be able to hang in the game, I guess. Um, and then though, I mean, I guess the, the one time Navy really was on the field with, a really big talent discrepancy was that Notre Dame game and Kansas state shouldn't be anything like that. So I, I like the middies a lot in that game. What's the, Oh yeah. Like I would take, I would take Navy all day against two and a half, which is what uh, Caesars currently has it at. Yeah. I, w- I would Kansas, take all that. Kansas state opened as a favorite in that one. Really? Oh, yeah. Dang, missed that one. And the, it, like Navy hasn't been, the American has had a kind of a, not a great bowl season. Um, so American American defenses have been lit up. Yeah, 
Yeah, but it, it hasn't affected Navy's overall ranking too badly. But um, I'm in the moment I am uh, in contact with venues um, and potentially driving down to Cincinnati to check out some venues for the advanced stats conference that I'm planning for June. Uh, and I have more details out on that in January. So stay tuned if you're interested. Then Sharp College Football, where uh, there's all kinds of interesting stats that you can look at. Um, something I just to kind of give people uh, the schedule. I'll have the normal Sunday run this next Sunday for Beta Rank. Um, and then there's one more bowl game on Monday. And then I'll run Beta Rank again after that. And then that'll give us the last run before the college football final. And then the morning after the college football final, I'll, I'll rerun Beta Rank again. And that'll be the final Beta Rank of the season. Um, once that's done, we basically sit around for two things to come out. One is Bill Connolly's returning production numbers, um, which are a part of the preseason projection model. And then second signing day in February, um, which is a bummer because <laughs> the second signing day comes like right in the midst of I'll have to check. But it almost always comes in the midst of like right before conference basketball tournaments. So um I, it's it's a bummer because I, I usually have like hey like I have like let's talk college football and everybody's like no no it's college basketball time, um, <laughs> but yeah like I I should have uh, a projection model out for just look for if you're if you're a college football nut um, end of February ish early March we should have uh, the preseason projections out and I usually bug the folks that I have the that I buy the data from to get me the schedule file as well, because I will also have, as soon as I have the projections done, I will have projected win losses and uh, projected conference championships. And the projection model did pretty well this, uh, this off season in predicting uh, who was going to win the divisions and who was going to win the conferences. Nice. And then last thing on my end, uh, thanks to everybody that's gave us a five-star review on iTunes and, uh, and, and Kenneth, Kenneth, Kenneth H444 is in first place in our bowl pool right now with six wins. I'm sorry, with seven wins. And he is followed by Rob. Rob, you have six wins. And then actually Rick DeNice, who is a contributor to the podcast, also has six wins in the bowl pool as well. And then followed by a bunch of other people. So uh, Kenneth, looking pretty good for that $25 Vivid Seats gift certificate. Uh, Thanks, everybody, for joining us. We will catch you next week. And uh, thanks for sharing the podcast. And make sure to write a review.